Hey everybody and welcome into episode 134 of Jake's Take. I am Jake Heller, pleased to be joining you guys once again. Thank you for tuning in, I appreciate all of your support. So much to cover on today's show. The 2024 NASCAR season, three weeks in, it's been interesting, controversial, crazy, so many moments to dive into, whether it's the Daytona 500 as a fuel mileage race, Alex Bowman's recklessness towards the end of the race, and then... Alex Bowman and William Byron, who was ahead of who when the caution flag came out on the last lap of the Daytona 500, and what are some of the steps moving forward that NASCAR could take to prevent situations or controversies like this. Atlanta Motor Speedway, a three-wide photo finish for the win between Daniel Suarez, Ryan Blaney, and Kyle Busch, seven one-thousandths of a second between the top three finishers. It doesn't get any better than that. Brad Keselowski off to the worst start of his career. Two races in, two DNFs, 36 in points. Whoever imagined that? Whoever imagined the slow start that Joey Logano was off to? And then last night at Las Vegas Motor Speedway in the Craftsman Truck Series race, Rajah Karuth, the first win of his career in the Craftsman Truck Series, just the third African-American driver In the 76-year history of NASCAR to win in any of the top three divisions, his mentor Bubba Wallace, two NASCAR Cup Series wins to his name, along with six Craftsman Truck Series wins, and of course, the late Wendell Scott, one of the true pioneers in NASCAR, the Lone Cup win of his career at Jacksonville in December of 1963. Going to be talking about the promising future that Rajah Karuth has in this sport. But to kick things off, We have to look no further than the biggest name in NASCAR, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Now, in early February, the first episode of the Dale Jr. download for the 2024 season, Dale Earnhardt Jr. said on his podcast, I don't have a contract with NBC right now. My contract with NBC expired after the championship race in November. And several thoughts came to mind for me. I thought, what the hell's really going on? That was in November. This is February. And Dale Earnhardt Jr. and NBC Sports still don't have a deal in place for 2024. I thought of that. But then I also thought, you know what? It's February. NBC, their first cup race isn't until Father's Day, June 16th at Iowa Speedway. So there's plenty of time for both parties to get a deal done. But this past weekend, when NASCAR was at Atlanta Motor Speedway, You saw Adam Stern from the Sports Business Journal. Adam Stern reported that Amazon was interested in Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s services. So you thought, okay, well, there's always that possibility as well, but I would imagine that they have to get a deal done. And this past Thursday, a little before 10 o'clock in the morning, there was an article that came out from The Athletic that Dale Earnhardt Jr. will not, not, be a part of NASCAR on NBC moving forward. And that more than likely he'll be taking off broadcasting for the 2024 season, but will be coming back in 2025 with Amazon and TNT. Five races on Amazon, five races on TNT, sandwiched in between NASCAR on Fox's part of the year and NASCAR on NBC's part of the year. My takeaway from this is NBC really, really fumbled the ball. Now, Dale Earnhardt Jr., when he was getting set to retire in 2017, obviously Fox and NBC 
both networks were going to be courting his services. And I don't know what numbers both networks threw at Dale Earnhardt Jr. I would imagine there is a possibility that Fox could have thrown more money at him. But at the end of the day, he chose NASCAR and NBC because his old crew chief, Steve Letarte, who resurrected his career in the early 2010s, Steve had been a part of NBC since they came back into NASCAR in 2015. And it's ironic in itself because, as I talked about, the revitalization of Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s career with Steve Letarte. And Steve, during the 2013 NASCAR season, Steve was asked to do a few truck races on MRN radio. And Steve said that he really, really enjoyed it. He had a great time doing it. It took away from the stress of being Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s crew chief. Obviously, the most high-profile job there was in the sport. But towards the end of the 2013 NASCAR Cup Series season, NBC Sports approached Steve Letarte and said, hey, we would love for you to be our crew chief analyst when we get back on the air in 2015, just like Larry McReynolds is with NASCAR and Fox. And he told Dale about the opportunity that was presented to him. And ultimately, at the season finale in 2013, Steve Letarte told Dale Earnhardt Jr. that he was going to take the job with NBC, and that 2014 was going to be his final season as his crew chief. Now, the two of them that year, they won four races together. They won the Daytona 500. They swept Pocono. Dale Jr. finally got a win at Martinsville. But my point is, that was the reason why Dale Earnhardt Jr. joined NBC, was that familiarity, that brotherhood, that friendship that Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Steve Letarte have always had. And Dale Earnhardt Jr. brought such a level of energy to NASCAR and NBC right off the bat. You saw his first race with them, 4th of July weekend in 2018 at Chicagoland Speedway, the Kyle and Kyle show with Kyle Busch and Kyle Larson, when going down to turn one as, as Kyle Larson is trying his best to beat Kyle Busch for the win that day. And Dale Jr., his first true broadcast on NBC, we all remember that iconic call, slide job, slide job. And it just seemed like instantly Dale Earnhardt Jr. was going to be a natural at broadcasting and on NBC. And honestly, in my personal opinion, and this isn't as someone that has been a lifelong Dale Earnhardt Jr. fan, but to me, I felt like Dale Jr.'s presence on NBC was part of the reason that their broadcasts have been far superior compared to NASCAR on Fox the past couple of years. And I mean, man, just that energy that he would bring to those broadcasts. And I know he would get a little overzealous at times, but when you would hear that emotion in his voice, we got to crash! I mean, it made for such great TV. And the way that he would call those restrictor plate races at Daytona, at Talladega, and the past year and a half at Atlanta Motor Speedway, as it has sort of evolved into a restrictor plate race, and how he'd be talking about the energy of the pack and controlling the lions and controlling the air. I mean, he he brought something to NBC that was, I don't think, would have been attainable with Jeff Burton. I mean, Jeff Burton is an okay commentator. But I am extremely disappointed in NASCAR and NBC and their lack of effort to retain their biggest name in Dale Earnhardt Jr., Obviously, I don't know what truly happened. I don't know what Dale's side of the story is, what NBC's side of the story is. But to me, 
it's very, very disappointing when three and a half months before NBC's first race of the season, and already it's been known that he won't be a part of them in 2024 and beyond. And I like Steve Letarte, don't get me wrong. I like Steve Letarte, but the one thing with Steve when he's on these broadcasts is sometimes I feel like Steve Letarte talks way, way too fast. Way, way too fast, like he's had about six pots of coffee. And he's talking about pit strategy, pit strategy, pit strategy, and track position, and track position. And I like Steve Letarte, but sometimes I feel like he talks way, way too fast. And with Jeff Burton, Jeff Burton, his voice is like nails on a chalkboard. And I really don't feel like hearing him get so excited when his son Harrison Burton makes a pass for 27th out on the racetrack. So very, very disappointed with NBC. And when you look at Amazon, Amazon is basically taking over the world, as my fiance Kelly says. When you, obviously, I'll be first to say it, a majority of my shopping that I get done is on Amazon. And you look at how they've become a part of Thursday Night Football. And honestly, Jason Boone brought it up the other day. Is it just me, or does it seem like NBC Sports gave Dale Earnhardt Jr. the same treatment they gave Al Michaels? Think about that for a second. Al Michaels, who, in my opinion... No disrespect to Pat Summerall. May he rest in peace. But to me, Al Michaels is the greatest play-by-play commentator of all time. I mean, the miracle on ice, all the Super Bowls that he's called, the earthquake in San Francisco during the 1989 World Series. I mean, it's been one iconic moment after another for Al Michaels. And personally, I feel like they pushed Al out the door After Super Bowl 56 in Los Angeles between the Rams and the Bengals, I felt like they pushed Al out the door. And yeah, Al, maybe he might have lost a little bit of his fastball as he's going to be 80 years old on November 12th. But he still has that wit. He still has that sense of humor. You hear all the gambling jokes that he has from time to time. And in some ways, I mean, yeah, Dale Earnhardt Jr., he's going to turn 50 years old on October 10th, but... It's like I talked about. It's the energy, the passion, the enthusiasm. Honestly, the first three years of NASCAR and NBC, when it was just Letarte and Burton from 2015 to 2017 before Dale Jr. joined them, they were okay. Their broadcasts were okay, but it just didn't have that that energy and enthusiasm that I talked about. So no doubt in my mind, even if we're only going to get Dale Earnhardt Jr. for 10 races in 2025, five on Amazon and five on TNT, I think immediately his presence will make them great. And I can only imagine the amount of money that Amazon shelled at him, just like they shelled at Al Michaels for these Thursday night football games when they got him in 2022. So extremely disappointed in NASCAR and NBC. I would imagine moving forward that it's just going to be a three-man booth with Rick Allen, Steve Letarte, and Jeff Burton. I mean, unless it's Dale Jarrett, Kyle Petty, not Kyle Petty, Unless it's Dale Jarrett, Kurt Busch, or Jamie McMurray, that you're getting to keep that four-man booth going. Either way, I feel like NASCAR and NBC, they fumbled the ball, and their coverage will suffer for a long time to come. Now, some other news that came into, pol- uh, came into play over the past 24, 48 hours or so, Adam Stern from the Sports Business Journal has said that possibly, possibly, 
we could have a fourth manufacturer in the NASCAR Cup Series by 2026 for the first time since 2012 when Brad Keselowski sent Dodge out in style winning the championship. Obviously, a lot of fans, myself included, have hoped ever since then over the past 12 years that one day Dodge will make their return to NASCAR. I mean, they were away from NASCAR for 23 years. You know, they withdrew after the 1978 season and came back in 2001. But more than likely, I'm hearing some rumblings that Honda could possibly be joining NASCAR in 2026. Now, obviously, the rules that are in place when you have an OEM that is joining the sport, you have to put the paperwork in at least two years in advance. And I believe the deadline, if Honda wants to be a part of NASCAR in 2026, I believe the deadline is in September of this year that they have to file the paperwork. So it makes you wonder, who would, out of all these teams in the NASCAR Cup Series, who would probably leave their respective manufacturer, whether it's Chevrolet, Ford, Toyota, who would leave their manufacturer to take that chance on becoming the factory team, priority number one for Honda, if they do get into the Cup Series? And some people thought, would it be Hendrick Motorsports? I can't see that because that is Chevrolet's bread and butter for 40 years now. That has been priority number one for, I would say, probably 30-plus years. Richard Childress Racing used to be Chevrolet's number one priority, but it clearly is Hendrick Motorsports now. And even though Rick Hendrick has tons and tons of Honda car dealerships across the country, I just can't see Hendrick Motorsports leaving General Motors for Honda. Of course, there's all the talk about the Chevrolet Camaro. The Chevrolet Camaro will not be in production after 2024. So what's going to happen with, with Chevrolet with all these teams? Is it just going to be a different different make that they're going to use? Or are you going to have Cadillac come into the fold to take the place of Chevrolet? I don't know. I can't see Chevrolet leaving NASCAR. I just can't. I know some people talked about Trackhouse. You know, Justin Marks said that Chevrolet has had a huge part of his career. And he said that he would do anything to win a championship. But I feel like all the pieces are in place for Trackhouse to be a great team for years to come. Sure, they they won't be Chevrolet's number one priority like Hendrick Motorsports is. But I, I just can't see that happening. And when I look at some other teams, maybe Spire. I mean, Marco Andretti is a part of Spire. You hear how his dad, Michael, is trying to get into NASCAR. Obviously, you look at Andretti Autosport in the IndyCar series. They've been with Honda for a very, very long time now. Maybe Spire could possibly be a Honda team one day. But Raja Carruth and the alliance that they have with Hendrick Motorsports, technical alliance, HendrickCars.com. I mean, it's, it's really, really hard to say. But there is one team that comes in mind. Adam Stern also talked about how Front Row Motorsports... You know, Front Row Motorsports, they're a Ford team. They had an affiliation with Roush Fenway Keselowski for the past couple years. But this winter, they switched that affiliation from RFK to Penske. And look at what you've seen so far. Michael McDowell qualified second at the Daytona 500. First pole of his career in Atlanta. And you look at Todd Gillen. Todd Gillen led laps in in the Daytona 500. Led more laps than anyone at Atlanta Motor Speedway with 58 before he 
broke a toe link and finished 26th. And my point is, Adam Stern talked about how Ford has quickly become, or Front Row Motorsports has quickly become one of Ford's top priorities. I mean, when you think of top priorities for Ford and NASCAR, you look at Team Penske and Roush Fenway Keslowski. I don't, th- I don't feel like they're too far behind either. But my point is, now think about this. Think of the teams that Chevrolet used to have. You used to have Joe Gibbs Racing. You used to have Stuart Haas Racing. Joe Gibbs Racing eventually switched over to Toyota in 2008 and clearly had been priority number one for Toyota. That was why they did it, because they were always going to be second fiddle to Hendrick Motorsports or even third fiddle behind Hendrick and Richard Childress. And with Stuart Haas, you know, Stuart Haas, when they started in 2009 and they had that technical alliance with Hendrick Motorsports, getting cars, getting engines, Kevin Harvick winning a championship in 2014, Tony Stewart winning a championship in 2011. But they knew in the back of their minds, even though we have this affiliation with Hendrick Motorsports, we're always going to be second fiddle to them when it comes to Chevrolet. And that was part of the reason around this time in 2016 when you heard that Tony Stewart and Gene Haas, that they were switching over to Ford in 2017. And a lot of people felt early on like, oh, this is a bad move. This is going to kill Stewart Haas racing. But you saw early on those first few years, they were Ford's number one priority, or at least 1A and 1B with Team Penske. But over time, as the race cars got worse, Kevin Harvick, his decline sort of began. And you've seen some of the drivers. Kevin Harvick's gone. Clint Boyer's gone. Eric Amarola, he's not there anymore. Stuart Haas Racing is a dumpster fire right now. There is no other way around it. And when they announced that Josh Berry was going to be taking over Kevin Harvick's four car in 2024, notice in that press conference at at Charlotte Motor Speedway that Tony Stewart, that Ford did not really come out of his mouth too much. And their contract with Ford is up after the 2024 season. That to me tells me that they have fallen in the pecking order and the priority order for Ford Motor Company. Maybe, just maybe, could it be possible that Stuart Haas Racing one day could potentially be a Honda team? Think about that for a second. Maybe, in order for them to be relevant again, maybe they just might be the Honda team. Honda's number one priority if they do come to NASCAR in 2026. I mean, this is, as I said, this is if. This is speculation that I'm just talking about here. But maybe that's something that could make Stuart Haas Racing relevant again. Because Josh Berry, Noah Gregson, Chase Briscoe, Ryan Priest, I mean, and that's the other thing, you know, Chase Briscoe, he's had that contract with Ford Motor Company for a long time. What happens there? But at this point, I don't think Chase would, would really care either way. I mean, I'm sure he just wants to be in the Cup Series and wants to be in good equipment. And he had good equipment, but last year was a complete disaster for Stuart Haas Racing. This was their first winless season since they began in 2009. And when you know it, Kevin Harvick's final season was one of their worst. So definitely some hard, hard times right now at Stuart Haas Racing. As I talked about last night, in the Craftsman Truck Series race at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, Raja Carruth, 
who turns 22 years old in June. Raja Karuth, in his second full-time season in the Craftsman Truck Series, his first pull earlier in the afternoon, and his first win in the Craftsman Truck Series. As I talked about, the third African-American driver to win in NASCAR's top three series, the late Wendell Scott, and Bubba Wallace, who has become a mentor to Raja Karuth over the past year or so. And it's something when the whole garage area, the whole sport, the whole fan base, how they're all excited for Raja Karuth. You saw how many people congratulated him. And the big thing to keep in mind is Raja, last year he was with GMS Racing. GMS Racing, they closed down after the 2023 season. And he landed a deal with Spire for their truck team basically at the last minute, just weeks before Daytona, driving the 71 truck for Spire. And originally, Raja Karuth had sponsorship on that truck from HendrickCars.com, but just for 10 races. Well, a few days ago, HendrickCars.com announced that they were going to sponsor Raja for the entire 2024 Craftsman Truck Series season. And one of the first people that Raja thanked in his interview last night was Mr. H, Rick Hendrick. And it makes you wonder, Raja Karuth definitely has a bright, bright future in this sport. My biggest thing is, Spire, they've got a great truck team, as you've seen. He won with them. Kyle Busch won with them last week at Atlanta. Kyle Larson won with them at North Wilkesboro last year, two years ago. William Byron won a truck race with, with them at Martinsville. Obviously, their cup stuff, even though they have that affiliation with Hendrick Motorsports and they get their engines from Hendrick, Obviously, their cup program is nowhere near as good as the truck program is, even though they've improved a lot, as you've seen with Corey LaJoy. And I feel like Carson Hosevar has, has done a respectable job so far this year. But with Raja Karuth, do not rush him up to the cup series. Do not. He's going to be 22. He's got a great head on his shoulder, great following. Obviously, himself and Bubba Wallace, I know that NASCAR... They look towards diversity. They look towards building on those fan bases, whether it's African-American fans, female fans, Latino fans. And you definitely have two really, really good drivers right there that can help you build that African-American fan base. Don't forget, Raja Karuth did an Xfinity race for Hendrick Motorsports last year at Phoenix in November. So obviously the connections are there. Can you imagine one day if Raja Karuth is in a NASCAR Cup Series car for Hendrick Motorsports? I wouldn't consider it far-fetched. Now, William Byron and Chase Elliott, their contracts are through 2027. They're not going anywhere. They're Hendrick lifers. I can't picture them in anything besides the 24 or the 9. When I look at their other two drivers, when I look at Kyle Larson and Alex Bowman... That's where it gets interesting because obviously Kyle has that HendrickCars.com sponsorship and his contract is through 2025. Now, Kyle, when he did a podcast with Kenny Wallace not too long ago, Kyle said that he's going to be 32 in July. This is his 10th year in the Cup Series. He said, honestly, I can't see myself in the Cup Series when I'm 40 years old. 
So let's just say, come 2025, Kyle Larson's had enough and just wants to do dirt racing and sprint car racing full-time. Picture Raja Karuth in the number 5 Hendrickars.com Chevrolet in the Cup Series in 2026. I wouldn't put it past Rick Hendrick and Jeff Gordon. But, you know the guy I always talk about when it comes to Hendrick Motorsports, and that's Alex Bowman. And everyone's thinking, well, Alex's contract is through 2026. Kyle Busch had a contract with Hendrick Motorsports through 2009 and was kicked out in 2007. Okay? Those are what they call option years on a contract that Kyle had for 2008 and 2009. With Alex, we know he's the weakest link at Hendrick Motorsports. He's the only one that doesn't have double-digit wins in the Cup Series to his name. We know that he's the one that basically has to luck into everything instead of earning it. And I know that Alex's sponsor, Ally, I know that they like him, but also at the same time, you look at the CEO of Ally, the president of Ally, Andrea Brimmer, and Andrea is someone that is a champion for diversity to the point that in the summer of 2020, there was even some rumors of Bubba Wallace taking over the 48 Ally car in 2021 as Jimmy Johnson was getting set to retire. Obviously, before Denny Hamlin and Michael Jordan approached Bubba about 23XI, and let's face it, Alex Bowman couldn't, couldn't keep a sponsor to save his life. He lost all of Dale Earnhardt Jr. sponsorships that he inherited. If it wasn't for Ally, I mean, he was having all these Chevrolet dealerships in 2020, all these different Chevy things on his car. Ally basically came to the rescue. I mean, spades a spade. The proof is in the pudding. You know, he couldn't keep Nationwide, Mountain Dew, Exalta, obviously Exalta realized we want to spend our money on William Byron. So I wouldn't put it past Rick Hendrick to one day put Raja Karuth in the 5 car or the 48 car. So just going to have to wait and see. But definitely excited for Raja Karuth. Definitely a bright, bright future in this sport. So let's talk about these first two races so far. And the 66th running of the Daytona 500, unfortunately for the third time in 12 years, the Daytona 500 was postponed to a Monday, President's Day, February 19th. And on President's Day, around 4.20 in the afternoon or so, Dwayne The Rock Johnson gave the command to start engines for the 66th Daytona 500. And before we got going, one of the things that really stood out to me was Joey Logano, on the pole for the Daytona 500 for the first time in his career, Joey Logano said, this is the best car I've ever had at Daytona. I mean, think about that for a second. And Penske has built some really, really good speedway cars for Joey Logano over the years, whether it was with Todd Gordon or now with Paul Wolf. I mean, that was a huge statement from our 2015 Daytona 500 champion. So around 4.30 or so, the 66th Daytona 500 was underway with Joey Logano and Michael McDowell on the front row. And I expected Joey to 
be in control of this race, be in control of the pack. I expected him to be aggressive, but also I also expected his ex-teammate, Brad Keselowski, to be one of the most aggressive drivers. And unfortunately, things reared its ugly head on lap six when car six, Brad Keselowski, coming off a turn four, three wide. He's on top, John Hunter Nemechek in the middle, Harrison Burton on the bottom. They come off a turn four. Brad comes down into John Hunter Nemechek, John Hunter Nemechek into Harrison Burton, and Harrison was basically along for the ride, along with Carson Hosevar, as they slid off into that wet grass, came back up the track. Their days were ruined right then and there, along with Austin Dillon, Kaz Grala, and Jimmy Johnson. Ryan Priest spun and nearly hit the inside wall. He was basically the only one that didn't suffer any damage. And with Brad Keselowski now 0 for 15 in the Daytona 500, it takes me back to 2018. His first race as my driver after Dale Earnhardt Jr. retired. And I remember NASCAR and Fox, they were talking about who some of the best restrictor plate drivers in the sport were. Obviously, you look at Brad Keselowski, Joey Logano, Denny Hamlin, Ryan Blaney, And Daryl Waltrip said that even though Brad Keselowski is one of the best restrictor plate drivers in the sport, he said when it comes to the Daytona 500, he said that sometimes he feels like he overthinks the Daytona 500, that he gets too tense, he puts too much pressure on himself. And maybe maybe that has something to do with why Brad Keselowski still hasn't won a Daytona 500. I mean, I never really thought of that until... This year's Daytona 500, when you saw a mistake like that early on, six laps in, taking out a bunch of cars like that, and you look at how aggressive Brad was in the Daytona 500 last year when there was about three or four incidents that he caused in that race. So maybe maybe Brad Keselowski, just like Peyton Manning, that was the narrative with Peyton Manning until he finally won his Super Bowl, Super Bowl 41 against the Chicago Bears. The narrative or the knock that people had on Peyton Manning was that he would get too tense. He would overthink things. And when you get tense and when you overthink things, that's when you make mistakes. Whereas little brother Eli, two-time Super Bowl champion, I mean, Peyton was a two-time Super Bowl champion too. But with Eli, Eli was just more along the lines of, oh, hell, whatever happens, happens. Whereas with Peyton, obviously being a perfectionist, and we know Brad Keselowski, he's sort of along those same lines that he wants to be a perfectionist. He wants to do everything right. But sometimes when you tense up and you overthink things, this is what happens. And Kevin Harvick, I I love what Kevin Harvick is doing so far with NASCAR on Fox. And Kevin, right then and there, said this could set the, the tone for the Daytona 500 either way. He said... Either we're going to have a really, really crazy Daytona 500 or things are going to calm down. And at that point, I honestly thought that this was going to be a crazy Daytona 500. And I was amazed when I saw the three-wide racing that we had and the clean racing that we had a majority of the race until, obviously, Alex Bowman caused all the havoc and chaos that he did with eight laps to go. But we'll get to that in a little bit. But once we got back going, I expected the Fords to dominate 
the early part of the race and control things, but I also knew how strong Toyota was going to be. And I have to say that, you know, there are some drivers that adapt to restrictor plate racing right off the bat and are good at it. When you look at a Brad Keselowski, Denny Hamlin, Joey Logano, Ryan Blaney, Bubba Wallace, even Austin Sendrick. But for some drivers, it takes some time for them to get acclimated to restrictor plate racing. And one of them that comes to mind is Christopher Bell. And when Christopher Bell took the lead from Joey Logano on lap nine, I was surprised how he was able to control that pack for 22 solid laps in a row. But as we saw, those Fords, Ryan Blaney, Michael McDowell, even Josh Berry was looking really, really good and in contention early on. But when it came to pitting, when it came to pitting in the sequence of green flag pit stops, nobody did a better job of orchestrating those green flag pit stops than the Chevrolets did. And that's what you saw at the end of the stage when you saw Chase Elliott get to the lead. Chase Elliott to the lead, and you saw all of those Hendrick cars that were up there with him. His teammate, Kyle Larson, Alex Bowman, William Byron, and some other Chevrolets too. Ross Chastain, Kyle Busch. I mean, at the end of stage one, think of it. Chase Elliott was your stage one winner. His teammate Kyle Larson in second, Ross Chastain third, Alex Bowman fourth, William Byron fifth, Kyle Busch in sixth. Then a trio of Toyotas with Denny Hamlin, Bubba Wallace, and Martin Trex Jr. before another Chevrolet with Daniel Suarez got the final stage point in tenth. So Chevrolet definitely was doing a really good job of controlling these pit stops. And once we got back going, though, you saw how the Fords were in control. You saw Joey Logano. You saw Todd Gilliland. Todd Gilliland led 16 laps in the Daytona 500. I mean, you can make the argument the Fords probably had the best cars in this race. Joey Logano led more laps than anyone with 45. But as we talked about, it's all about the pit stops. And I have to say, I felt like Austin Sendrick... I know that I bash him a lot on this podcast, but I have to say, I know these first two races were basically restricted plate races with the Daytona 500 with Atlanta. And I said, if any, if really, if anyone needed to pick it up this year, I said, Austin Sendrick, Daniel Suarez, Harrison Burton. And honestly, in this Daytona 500, I felt like Austin Sendrick probably had a better car than he even did two years ago. But for whatever reason, Ryan Blaney, his teammate, they're like water and oil when it comes to Daytona, especially in the 500. And you saw how Ryan hung him out to dry there at the end of stage two as he went on to win stage two. But throughout, as this race was unfolding, I told my fiance, Kelly, I said, is it just me or does it seem like these cars are going way, way slower? I know everybody's bunched up in a big pack, but these cars are just going way, way slower than expected. And, I mean, the racing was good, it was clean, but was it really racing when you have guys that are 50% throttle, even less than that, in a big pack trying to save fuel mileage? As the late great Dale Earnhardt Sr. would say, that's not real racing. And these next-gen cars, it's just amazing how much slower they are compared to the Gen 6 cars. Car Tomorrow. Gen 4. I mean, Denny Hamlin talked about it on his podcast. When Danica Patrick won the poll for the 2013 Daytona 500, 
I think her average speed was about 196 miles per hour. That was the first race with the Gen 6 cars. And you would see in practice sessions at Daytona and Talladega, when everybody would be bunched up in a pack, you would see some drivers, they would crack an average of 200 miles an hour or more. And here, with this next-gen car and with the body, the way that it's shaped and styled, you have guys in Daytona 500 qualifying that are high 49-second laps, low 50-second laps. I mean, it just... I don't know what it is about this package, but NASCAR just needs to figure out something to make the racing better when it comes to restricted plate racing, especially at Daytona and Talladega. It's just like everybody's running half throttle. You're in this giant bubble of air, and really nobody could do anything. You can't really pass anyone. So we talk about some of our champions. We talk about Brad Keselowski's Daytona 500 drought. We've talked about Martin Trex Jr., and his lack of luck at Daytona. Kyle Busch, as the laps were unfolding, especially in stage two, it really looked like Kyle Busch was setting himself up nicely for 20 years of trying, 20 years of frustration, just like Dale Earnhardt in 1998. Kyle Busch got to the lead and had an excellent race car. And when he came in for his pit stop after the second stage was over, that's where problems arose as the left front wheel wasn't tightened and he had to limp all the way back around come back to pit road get the wheel tightened and by the time they got to atlanta kyle bush had a new jack man and what impressed me the most about kyle bush was kevin harvick even talked about it himself and and what's so amazing about this is kevin harvick his first sit down interview was with kyle bush and and you want to talk about a full circle moment. And it took me back to 2001. Daryl Waltrip, after he retired, the first race of NASCAR on Fox, Daryl Waltrip's first sit-down interview was with his biggest rival, Dale Earnhardt Sr., just three days before Dale's tragic death on the last lap of the Daytona 500. And when you look at Dale Earnhardt and Daryl Waltrip, and you go back to the 1980s, when both of them were in the prime of their career, Dale Earnhardt won three championships in the 1980s, Daryl Waltrip won three championships in the 1980s, and it finally came to a head at Richmond, February of 1986, when they were battling for the win with five laps to go, going down into turn three, Dale Earnhardt hooks Daryl Waltrip head on into the wall. That was the peak of their rivalry right there. But as time went on over the next 15 years, and the two of them became good friends, that's what you saw in that interview three days before Dale Earnhardt's death in the Daytona 500. You saw these two fierce competitors that were the best of friends and were having a great conversation, talking about racing, talking about their personal lives, talking about their families. I mean, it's, it's sad what happened in that Daytona 500, but at the same time, it was refreshing to see those two at peace with each other three days before the tragedy that unfolded on the last lap of the Daytona 500. And when you look at Dale Earnhardt, of course, you look at 17 years with Richard Childress Racing, Kevin Harvick being the guy that took over for Dale Earnhardt at Richard Childress Racing. And now here's Kyle Busch in his second season with Richard Childress Racing. And here we were once again, 
two very fierce competitors. Late 2010, early 2011, you saw the genuine hatred that Kevin Harvick and Kyle Busch had for each other when Kevin wrecked Kyle Busch in the season finale at Miami in 2010, and then in the 2011 Southern 500 at Darlington when Kyle Busch rightward Kevin head on into the wall with a couple laps to go. And you saw how Kevin got out of his car on pit road after the race was over and punched Kyle Busch while he was still sitting in his car. I would say by about 2017, 2018, the two of them became friends. Not the best of friends, but they became really, really good friends and have so much respect and so much admiration for each other. And my point is, Kevin Harvick, in the sit-down interview, and as he talked about on his new podcast, Happy Hours with Caitlin Vinci and Mamba Smith, Kevin said that you, you've seen a much more mature Kyle Busch. And it showed after this pit stop. If this would have been Kyle Busch's Hendrick Motorsports days or a majority of his Joe Gibbs racing days, he would have F-bombed his pit crew to death. And meanwhile, here was Kyle after a loose wheel, loose left front wheel in his 20th Daytona 500. And he's telling the guys on the pit crew, hey, shake it off. Things happen. We still have a long ways to go. We can still win this race. He was the one being calm and mature Whereas Richard Childress, being the bitter old baby that he's been the past few years, he's F-bombing the pit crew to death and ends up making a change when they get to Atlanta. So it's definitely been refreshing to see a calmer and more mature side of Kyle Busch. But once the third and final stage got going, you saw all these different contenders that were in the mix when you think of Bubba Wallace A.J. Allmendinger leading laps in the Daytona 500. Kurt Busch worked his, or Kyle Busch, excuse me, working his way back up there. But once Denny Hamlin got to the lead on lap 154, my pick to win the Daytona 500, I felt like the race was going to be in Denny's hands right then and there. But as I kept talking about, these Fords, especially with Joey Logano, who led the most laps in the Daytona 500 with 45, I mean, when Joey got to the lead on lap 163, you felt like it was going to be in his hands again until... One last sequence of green flag pit stops with 20 laps to go. And like we had seen all day in the Daytona 500, once again, the Chevrolets just orchestrated these green flag pit stops to perfection. And Ross Chastain was able to take the lead on lap 181. Now, we've been talking about fierce competitors the past couple minutes that eventually became friends again. And I look no further than Joey Logano and his ex-Penske teammate, Brad Keselowski, like we talked about on the last show, I feel like Brad's last two years at Penske, 2020-2021, where Joey Logano was given Paul Wolf and the old two crew, you could definitely sense the tension between the two of them because both of them wanted to be the top dog at Penske. And now, as Brad has begun his third season at Roush Fenway Keselowski, And you saw those two forwards working together towards the end of the Daytona 500. It felt like pre-2020. It felt like the days when Brad had Paul Wolf and Joey had Todd Gordon. Seeing those two work together so well at a super speedway. They had a great plan in place. At the same time, William Byron and Alex Bowman had a great plan in place as well. Until it all came unglued on lap 192. And... Ross Chastain, I don't fault him one bit for all the blocking that he was doing on the top, on the bottom, through the middle. I mean, 
when you're trying to win your first Daytona 500, you got to do everything in your power to keep your car in the lead and in contention. But like myself and Josh Manley were talking about, I felt like Joey Logano and Brad Keselowski, I felt like the two of them had a great plan in place with eight laps to go. You saw how Joey was on the top. Brad went down to the bottom to make a run for the lead. Ross was running in the middle and ready to block Brad. And that was all working good until Daniel Suarez gave Alex Bowman a good push. And my thing is with Alex Bowman is you could push and push and push down the backstretch at Daytona, but you still can't be pushing off into turn three and propel your teammate into another car like what he did to William Byron into Brad Keselowski, and all hell broke loose as as Brad Keselowski is trying to take the lead from Ross Chastain, Alex Bowman pushes his teammate William Byron way too hard into Brad Keselowski. William's left front hits Brad's right rear, and there goes Brad up the track, head on into the wall, taking Joey Logano, Ryan Blaney, Kyle Larson got damaged, Denny Hamlin, Chris Busher, Martin Trex Jr., Joey Logano, as I talked about, Daniel Hamrick, Todd Gilliland, Ryan Priest, Eric Jones, Tyler Reddick, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., Ty Gibbs, Anthony Alfredo, Daniel Suarez. All of these cars are damaged and destroyed because Alex Bowman, once again, was driving down the backstretch at Daytona and his brain detaches. Like I talked about, you could push down the backstretch. You can't be pushing off into turn three and propel your teammate into another car. And what's so sickening about all of this is Alex Bowman, like he's done a majority of his Hendrick Motorsports career, he causes all this carnage and all this chaos, and he emerges out of all of it smelling like a friggin' rose without a scratch on the car. And it's so sickening how so many people on Twitter were like, oh, that was William Byron's fault. What was William Byron doing? When in reality, that wreck was 100% Alex Bowman's fault. Propelling your teammate into Brad Keselowski. And you emerge without a scratch on your car, but nobody, but a majority of Twitter doesn't want to blame you. They want to blame William Byron. And you know what? It amazes me how Alex Bowman, who has taken advantage of people's misfortune more than any other throughout his career, it amazes me how lucky this guy is all the time. Whereas he's the most overrated driver in NASCAR, Denny Hamlin said it at Martinsville in 2021. When Alex Bowman dumped Denny Hamlin to win the race at Martinsville Speedway, nearly cost Denny a spot in the championship four. And it's like Denny said when he got out of his car that day, he's a hack. He's an absolute hack. He gets his ass kicked by his teammates all the time. He's fucking terrible, as Denny Hamlin said himself. But because he was the one that took over for Dale Earnhardt Jr. in 2018, everybody just adores and glorifies Alex Bowman like he's the second coming. When his whole career has been taking advantage of other people's misfortunes, driving over his head, and basically having the smug, arrogant attitude about him. It just astonishes me. It absolutely astonishes me. He is by far the most overrated driver in NASCAR. And the only reason he has any fans is because he took over Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s car. He's definitely been one of the more luckier drivers there's been. Out of his seven wins, California in 2020, that was the only one that he didn't luck into. 
But everybody acts like he's such a great driver and such a great person when he's anything but that. I just couldn't believe how nobody wanted to blame Alex Bowman. Everybody wanted to blame William Byron when the proof is in the pudding over who caused that accident. Absolutely amazing. So, as they were sitting under the red flag, which lasted for about 15 and a half minutes, and you had William Byron in the lead, Ross Chastain in second, Austin Sendrick in third, Alex Bowman in fourth, and you saw how Ross Chastain and Alex Bowman, you saw the two of them work very, very well together in the race, and especially on that last restart. And you had William Byron on the bottom with Austin Sendrick. And that restart... Chastain and Bowman, they didn't really get a good restart. So here it was. It was Byron and Austin Sendrick. And here came Alex Bowman around the top, giving one hell of a push to Ross Chastain as they're coming down to take the white flag. And you know, Ross Chastain, I can't fault him one bit for all the moves that he made, whether it was blocking people, the crossover move that he tried on William Byron coming to get the white flag. He did everything that he had to do to win a Daytona 500. And Ross knew, as they were take, coming to take the white flag, I've got to cross under William because if it's the last lap and I go down in the turn one and I'm side-by-side side with William Byron, he knew that Alex Bowman was going to ditch him and go with his teammate. So he crosses under, but when he crosses under, he cuts across Austin Sendrick's front end. Both of them go spinning, and Austin Sendrick goes back up the track. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, William Byron loses all of his momentum on the bottom. Here's Alex Bowman on the top with Christopher Bell and Bubba Wallace behind him. And at that moment that Austin Sendrick is coming back up the track, that's when NASCAR felt the need to throw the caution flag and end the race right there. But the question became, who was ahead of who when the caution flag came out? And I remember thinking for a split second, do not even tell me that Alex Bowman, after he caused all of this carnage and comes out smelling like a rose, that he's going to win the Daytona 500. Do not tell me. So as the two of them cross the finish line under caution, William Byron and Alex Bowman, Kelly says to me, because she knows how much I, I like William Byron and how much he's going to be my driver once Brad Keselowski retires, she says, why aren't you celebrating? I said, because there's no official word on who won the race. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, when the caution flag came out, who was ahead of who? Was it Byron? Was it Bowman? I mean, the moment the caution flag came out is one thing, but the scoring loop, the last scoring loop they completed is another thing. So I'm thinking, please tell me that William Byron won this race. And a couple seconds go by, and they show a shot of Rudy Fugel on top of William Byron's pit box. And all of a sudden, you see, you see Rudy Fugel almost looking like he was crying. And I'm thinking, well, either William Byron is the winner, or they just handed the win to Bowman. And when Mike Joyce said... Charlotte, North Carolina's William Byron has won the Daytona 500. What a relief. What an absolute relief that it was William Byron and it wasn't Alex Bowman that lucked into the Daytona 500 after causing a 19-car pileup. But at the same time, the question becomes, what do we do moving forward? 
because you saw all the, the cameras, you saw the aerial shots, and you saw the one shot on Alex Bowman's end car on the roof where he's up alongside of William Byron and the caution lights start flickering. And for one split second, it almost looked like Alex Bowman could have been ahead. But here we were having to rely on an aerial shot from the Goodyear blimp to show who won the 66th Daytona 500. And it's like Josh Manley and I talked about the next morning and Jason Boone and I talked about the next morning. Here we are in 2024. Fox Sports has all of these cameras. NASCAR has all of this technology. And we're having to rely on an aerial shot from the Goodyear blimp to determine who just won the biggest race of the year, the Daytona 500. And thankfully, it was William Byron instead of Alex Bowman. But still, think of, think of how much of a bad look that is on NASCAR's part. And the next morning, we started thinking, the three of us, myself, Josh, and Boone, we started thinking, what are the measures that can be taken to prevent situations like this moving forward? Because this isn't the first time that this has happened. You look at the Xfinity race at Daytona, February of last year, when Sam Mayer goes tumbling down the backstretch on the final lap, they throw the caution, and it took minutes for NASCAR to decide on whether it was Austin Hill or John Hunter Nemechek that won the race. Ultimately, they gave the win to Austin Hill. You think of the 2005 truck race at Daytona. Jimmy Spencer drives into victory lane, and just minutes later is told, you got to get out of victory lane. Got to take the truck out of here because the late Bobby Hamilton Sr. was ahead of Jimmy Spencer the moment the caution flag came out. So Boone and Josh, they both said, when it's the Daytona 500, and you sit around for four hours watching that race, it has to finish under green. It has to. And while I agree with them on that, I just don't know what the perfect solution is moving forward. I mean, you look at the Arca Series for the longest time. The Arca Series, it would always finish under green. It could be the last lap of the race, and if someone wrecked or spun, they would re-rack them and do it again until there was a green flag finish. Obviously, if it was raining or if it was getting dark out, then they wouldn't. And while that's a good solution that you have to have the Daytona 500 finish under green, that just means you're going to tear up more race cars. So I don't know what the perfect solution is because obviously you look at the green-white checkers, you look at a one-lap shootout or a two-lap shootout, you're still going to tear up a bunch of cars no matter what, especially at Daytona or Talladega. So I don't know what the solution is moving forward. But what a start to the 40th season of Hendrick Motorsports William Byron, our Daytona 500 champion, the 11th win of his career, seven wins in the past year alone. Seven in the past year. And William Byron, as I talked about, our Daytona 500 champion, the first Daytona 500 championship for the 24 car since Jeff Gordon's third and final Daytona 500 victory in 2005. And you saw how Jeff was able to celebrate there with William Byron, and Rick Hendrick. For Hendrick Motorsports, this is their ninth Daytona 500 championship, but their first since 2014 with Dale Earnhardt Jr. behind the wheel. For Hendrick Motorsports, 1-2 in the Daytona 500 with William Byron winning and Alex Bowman finishing second. This was the fourth 1-2 finish for Hendrick Motorsports in the Daytona 500, 1989. Daryl Waltrip over Kenny Schrader. 
1997, the 1 2 3 finish by Jeff Gordon, Terry Labonte, and Ricky Craven, not too long after Rick was diagnosed with leukemia. 2013, Jimmy Johnson over Dale Earnhardt Jr., and 2024, William Byron over Alex Bowman. Finishing third in the Daytona 500 for the second year in a row was Christopher Bell. Corey LaJoy tying the best finish of his career in fourth. And Bubba Wallace rounding out the top five, his third top five finish in the Daytona 500. A.J. Allmendinger was sixth. Career best finish for John Hunter Nemechek in seventh. Teammate Eric Jones, eighth. Noah Gregson, ninth. Just the second top ten finish of his career, both coming at Daytona. And his teammate Chase Briscoe rounding out the top ten. Kyle Larson in 11th, definitely his best finish at Daytona in a long time. Kyle Busch 12th, Zane Smith, the rookie of the race in 13th, Chase Elliott 14th, Martin Trex Jr. 15th, Daniel Hemrick 16th, Ty Gibbs 17th, Chris Buescher 18th, Denny Hamlin 19th, and David Reagan was 20th. 21st and 22nd were Ross Chastain and Austin Sendrick after their crash on the last lap. Ryan Priest 23rd, Riley Hort. Riley Herbst, 24th. Josh Berry, 25th. Josh was doing good early on, led a lap, was in contention before getting spun on pit road by John Hunter Nemechek. Justin Haley, 26th. Anthony Alfredo, 27th. Jimmy Johnson, 28th. Out of the race, crashing out. Tyler Reddick in 29th. Ryan Blaney in 30th. Ricky Stenhouse Jr., 31st. Joey Logano, who led the most laps in the Daytona 500 with 45. He finished 32nd. Brad Keselowski now 0 for 15 in the Daytona 500 after crashing out and finishing 33rd. Daniel Suarez 34th, Todd Gilliland 35th, Michael McDowell 36th had some dashboard issues throughout the race. Austin Dillon 37th, Kaz Grella 38th, Harrison Burton 39th, and Carson Hosevar dead last in 40th. As I said, I felt like the Daytona 500 was a good race. I liked the the style of racing that we had. I just didn't like the fuel mileage factor that came into it and guys running half throttle throughout the race trying to save fuel. If not for that, I truly feel like this definitely could have been one of the best Daytona 500s of all time. If not for Alex Bowman driving over his head down the backstretch with eight laps to go, I felt like this was definitely shaping up for another great finish with Brad Keselowski, Ross Chastain, Joey Logano, William Byron, and Alex Bowman too. I mean, all it takes at Daytona, as we know, is one bad move, one reckless, stupid move, as we saw in the case of Alex Bowman, and look at how many cars get torn up. And I th- My biggest gripe when it comes to the Daytona 500 and when it comes to Alex Bowman is the day afterwards on the Dale Jr. Download. And the cool thing with the Dale Jr. download this year is every Tuesday, Dale Earnhardt Jr. will interview the winner of that weekend's race. So that Tuesday, William Byron called while he was in the middle of his media tour in New York City. And this past Tuesday, Daniel Suarez called in. And here's William Byron, fresh off of the Daytona 500 championship. And he's on with Dale Jr. and Amy and the rest of the the Dale Jr. download Dirty Mo crew. And here's Dale Jr. and William Byron. They're yucking it up about this Titanic Lego set. Everybody knows that William Byron loves Legos. And Dale Earnhardt Jr. was saying that he basically has, I guess you could say, some sort of infatuation when it comes to Titanic. And he was basically begging his wife, Amy, for 
the Titanic Lego set. And she was like, um, no. But if you want, that could be your 50th birthday present. So interview was great. They had a good time yucking it up about this whole Titanic Lego set. Interviews up and they talk about the end of the race. And just the tone of Downer Hart Jr.'s voice, you could hear that Alex Bowman bias rear its ugly head once again when they were talking about the timing of the caution flag and when the button was pushed on the last lap. And, oh, if that would have been a couple more seconds, if that would have been a couple more hundred feet, then Alex would have been the Daytona 500 champion and he would have been calling in from New York City instead of William Byron. What an absolutely shameful and disgraceful thing for Dale Earnhardt Jr. to say. Dale, you're better than that. You're a part of the media now. You're supposed to be objective. You're not supposed to show your bias. And that Alex Bowman bias reared its ugly head once again. And I get that that was the one that took over your car in 2018 when you retired and that's who you wanted to take over your car. Remember after the 2017 All-Star Race when Dale Earnhardt Jr. was on Periscope and a fan asked him, would you like to see Alex Bowman take over your 88 car in 2018? And he said, Alex, that would be pretty awesome. I thought you have got to be freaking kidding me. William Byron definitely would have done a better job in the 88. That's who I wanted to take over the 88 car. Kyle Larson was another one that I wanted to take over the 88 car. But instead, they hired this bum that didn't have a single NASCAR win to his name in any of the top three series when that announcement was made. Unbelievable. And for you to basically basically throw dirt on William Byron's Daytona 500 win and saying, oh, a couple more seconds, couple more hundred feet, and Alex would have been the Daytona 500 champion, and we could have talked to him instead, was an absolute disgrace. An absolute disgrace. William Byron, over the past 12 months, has won as many races as Alex Bowman has his entire career. William Byron has more class and more talent in his left pinky than Alex Bowman does altogether. I mean, This kid is 26 years old. He's a good kid. He's got his head on his shoulders. He's got the talent. He's finally living up to the hype and the potential that we all expected of him. Uh, He finished third in the championship last year to Ryan Blaney and Kyle Larson. My pick to win the 2024 championship. I mean, don't, don't be discounting or discrediting him because you wanted Alex Bowman to win the Daytona 500 instead. That's what I took away from it. It was absolutely shameful and embarrassing and disgusting the way that it came off. I mean, that's probably the biggest thing with Dale Earnhardt Jr. that I disagree on is this Alex Bowman obsession that he's had. And the point that he made is there's some races in your career that you lose out on and that you never get over. And I knew where he was going with this when he talked about the two Talladega races. It was the spring of 2004, and he and Jeff Gordon were side-by-side with five laps to go. Down in turns three and four, they were battling for the lead. He's up alongside of Jeff Gordon. Brian Vickers spins out behind them. NASCAR throws the caution flag, and this was before we had green-white checkers in the Cup Series. 
So they come back to take the caution flag, and Dale Earnhardt Jr. beats Jeff Gordon back to the caution flag. And you're thinking, I'm thinking, Dale Earnhardt Jr. just won this race. It's his fifth win at Talladega. And as they're coming on in the backstretch, Jeff Gordon pulls up alongside of him to challenge who was ahead of who when the caution flag came out. NASCAR, they went through the videotapes. They looked at all, all the different data that they had. They're in between, in between turns three and four. And as they're coming out of four, Mike Joyce says, Jeff Gordon will be the leader. And I remember thinking, you have got to be friggin' kidding me. I honestly thought that Dale Earnhardt Jr. had won that race. And the race finishes under caution. Jeff Gordon is the winner. Dale Earnhardt Jr. has to settle for second place. And you saw all the beer cans, the Budweiser cans that were thrown at Jeff Gordon as he was doing his burnouts. Fast forward to the fall of 2015. Last race in the round of 12. And the only way that Dale Earnhardt Jr. makes it to the round of 8 is if he wins this race at Talladega. That's the only way he's making it to the round of 8. Because two weeks prior to that, Carl Edwards... Ran him into the fence at Charlotte. Dale cut a tire down, had tons of damage, and finished 28th. Then the week before that at Kansas, he had a loose wheel, had a pit late in the race, and finished 21st. So the only way he's moving on to the round of eight is if he wins at Talladega. Well, it's a green-white checkered. Joey Logano on the outside. Dale Earnhardt Jr. on the inside. Behind them, Kevin Harvick's engine is dying. And as they're coming to take the green, he slams into Trevor Bain, causes all these cars to wreck and spin. They're showing the field going down to turn one, and it looks like Dale Earnhardt Jr. is ahead of Joey Logano, and they throw the caution flag. And he heard Greg Ives on the radio to Dale Jr. saying, stay ahead of him, stay ahead of him, stay ahead of him. So they complete the last lap and a half under caution. They take the checkered flag, and... Rick Allen was saying NASCAR is going to look at the videotape. They're going to decide on who won this race. Well, they're going down the backstretch and into turn three. Then all of a sudden, Rick Allen says, NASCAR has said the 22 of Joey Logano is the winner at Talladega. So Joey Logano is the winner. Dale Earnhardt Jr. finishes second. And just like that, his championship hopes are mathematically over. Just like that. And obviously, as a Dale Earnhardt Jr. fan, that spring race 20 years ago, that fall race 9 years ago, they definitely do sting, especially when you consider the following summer at Michigan International Speedway when Dale Earnhardt Jr. wrecked, and that was the wreck that brought on his concussion that cut his career short. Because if he wins that Talladega race, look at the next couple weeks afterwards, 6th at Texas Motor Speedway, 4th at Martinsville, and then at Phoenix. In the rain at Phoenix, Dale Earnhardt Jr. would win the race, the 26th and final victory of his career. Once again, the scoring loops, the timing of the caution flag, who was ahead of who. NASCAR felt that Joey Logano was just inches ahead of Dale Earnhardt Jr. And that was the difference between Dale Earnhardt Jr. being eliminated to possibly going to Miami as a part of the championship four. And I get like I was saying, those races still stink to this day. He said, there's races that you never get over. For me, it's those two. And for Alex, it will be this Daytona 500. And I'm thinking, dude, you sound more upset about Alex losing this Daytona 500 than he does, if we're being perfectly honest here. 
So that was my biggest takeaway from Daytona was just, I just couldn't believe what Dale Earnhardt Jr. had to say about all that on his podcast. Now, when it comes to Atlanta Motor Speedway, he definitely has been the biggest advocate for this new style at Atlanta Motor Speedway, this hybrid of restrictor plate racing and mile and a half racing. I mean, he definitely pushed and pushed and pushed for it after the summer race at Atlanta Motor Speedway last July. At the time, I thought I thought the only reason that the intensity was ramped up was because rain was on the way and it eventually cut the race short. That's the way that I felt about it. But even then, how Dale Jr. was saying that this was the hottest ticket in NASCAR, that it, you know, he would even put it ahead of the night race at Bristol. I remember thinking, like, that's that's pretty ballsy. So they get to Atlanta last weekend, and leading up to it, Dale Jr. said that, you know, eventually the way that Atlanta surface has always been, and the sand that sort of erodes the the asphalt, he said within within about two, three years, that asphalt's going to be worn out again, and it's going to be back like like Atlanta used to be. And Denny Hamlin agreed with him, but Denny said last Saturday when he met with the media, he said, even though, even though this surface is going to age and it's going to wear out over the next two or three years, I have a feeling, Denny Hamlin said, I have a feeling that NASCAR will still want to consider this a super speedway race. And the way that things unfolded this past Sunday at Atlanta Motor Speedway, like I was telling Josh Manley, like I was telling Jason Boone, I think from this point on, I honestly can't see Atlanta Motor Speedway ever being a true mile-and-a-half track ever again. My biggest concern with all of this is, I know someone asked the question on Twitter, I believe it was on Monday or Tuesday, they said, given how successful Atlanta Motor Speedway has been under its new configuration, should more mile-and-a-half tracks follow suit? And I'm thinking absolutely not. Charlotte Motor Speedway, Las Vegas Motor Speedway tomorrow, Homestead Miami Speedway, those are Kansas, those are the four best tracks with this next-gen car. We've seen how the mile-and-a-half tracks are perfect for this next-gen car. Atlanta, it's it's different, it's an anomaly, it's a -a one-of-a-kind racetrack, but I would just leave it at that. We don't need more Atlantas on the schedule. If you get more Atlantas on the schedule and you get everybody bunched up in a big pack like that and, you, and all these crazy things that happen, I mean, then it becomes more of an entertainment business than it is a sport, in my opinion. So Dale Jr., this past week on, on the Dale Jr. download, he said, when you look at Atlanta Motor Speedway and you look at a lot of empty seats that you've seen there over the past 20-some years, and you saw how in 2011 they lost their their spring race to Kentucky Speedway. And they had one race from 2011 to 2020. And even then, aside from 2020, obviously, when no fans were allowed, you still saw a lot of empty seats at Atlanta Motor Speedway. You saw the old, worn-out asphalt. You saw how everybody would get strung out. And the races would not really be all that entertaining. You know, four or five caution flags. Of course, the 550 horsepower package it didn't make it any better. So when Atlanta Motor Speedway was given a second race back in 2021, Marcus Smith basically had two options: either reconfigure the place or just shut it down completely. That's how bad it was for Atlanta Motor Speedway and for ticket sales. 
And for Marcus, he definitely took a big gamble because this track wasn't even his design. This track was designed by iRacing with the 28 degrees of banking. And obviously, 28 degrees of banking, fresh new pavement. Obviously, if, if they would have had the cars unrestricted, you're talking probably 215 miles an hour going off into turn one. So NASCAR, they wanted to choke the horsepower out of the cars when they went to Atlanta for the first time in March of 2022. And, and you saw how it was like a restrictor plate race. And all the racing there since then has been restrictor plate racing. And as time has gone on, you think to yourself, like, this is almost kind of gimmicky. But honestly, last Sunday's race at Atlanta, I felt like was very, very entertaining. And everybody knows I really haven't been a big fan of the new Atlanta Motor Speedway, but it's it's slowly starting to grow on me. It sounds like, for Josh Manley and Jason Boone, it sounds like the new Atlanta has already won them over. And what has been incredible so far this year has been front row motorsports like we were talking about earlier. Michael McDowell setting a new record in NASCAR in his 467th NASCAR Cup Series race. He finally won a pole, breaking a record by the late J.D. McDuffie that had stood for 46 years. The lone pole of J.D. McDuffie's career came at Dover in September of 1978. And I believe that was about 405 starts or something like that. So it's definitely been incredible to see Michael McDowell and to see Todd Gilliland, who qualified fourth, to see how dominant they were at this Atlanta race. Even though Todd Gilliland caused that massive carnage on the second lap of the race when he checked up to let Michael McDowell in. And when he checked up, you saw all of this carnage going down into turn one with... Austin Dillon, Chase Elliott, Noah Gregson torn up already. Josh Williams as well. You, you have to feel for him his first time in a colleague cup car, and he gets wrecked two laps in. Along with Christopher Bell, Harrison Burton, Bubba Wallace went spinning down into turn one. You thought his day was going to end right then and there. Along with Daniel Hemrick, John Hunter Nemechek, Eric Jones, Tyler Reddick, Alex Bowman. Karma finally caught up to him two laps in. Didn't have enough time to cause a 19-car pileup in that race along with Justin Haley, Ty Gibbs, Carson Hosevar, and our eventual winner, Daniel Suarez, got some damage in that lap two accident. And you saw how treacherous Atlanta was. You saw Chris Buescher spinning right in front of William Byron in between turns, turn four on just lap 26. And, you, and the interesting thing about it was Denny... Denny said how this was the first time in his career, all three stages, he was involved in a wreck. Whether it was Kyle Busch spinning him down the front stretch on lap 54, and then you look at the end of stage two. The end of stage two when Joey Logano thought that he was clear of, of Chris Busher and he wasn't, and ran himself and Chris Busher into the wall, and Denny gets swept up in the process just trying to mind his own business. And then, of course, how Denny was collected and one last wreck with 20 laps to go, he and Chase Briscoe going down into turn three. But I think the biggest thing that I take away from Atlanta Motor Speedway is what a horrific and disastrous start that Brad Keselowski is off to this year. Now, like Brad said earlier today before qualifying, he said, yeah, two races, two DNFs, that's not an ideal start to the year being 36th in points, now 34th in points after 
Noah Gregson and Ryan Priest were docked 35 points because of roof infractions on inspection day at Atlanta. But it's like Brad Keselowski said, I mean, when they wrecked at Daytona, at least he was going for the lead. When he wrecked it at Atlanta this past Sunday, he was running second and going for the lead. And unfortunately, unfortunately, Brad Keselowski just lost it in the middle of turns three and four. And by the angle that he lost control of the car, initially it made you think that maybe he might have had a right rear tire blowout. But I didn't see any indications of that. I didn't see a carcass come out or anything come out of the tire. And he just lost it in the middle of turns three and four and collected Kyle Larson and Corey LaJoy. And unfortunately for Brad Keselowski and for Kyle Larson, their days were over right then and there. And for Kyle Larson, I mean, everybody knows about his lack of luck when it comes to super speedway racing, Daytona and Talladega, but especially at Atlanta, ever since Atlanta was configured into a mini super speedway like it is, we've had five races so far on this new Atlanta, this hybrid of restrictor plate racing and mile and a half racing. And out of the five races that we've had on this new Atlanta track, Kyle Larson has been swept up in an accident in all five of them. And to my knowledge, he failed to finish. Let's see here. It was the spring race in 2022. And both races last year, for that matter, wrecked in both races. Matter of fact, the spring race last year, he was leading, I believe, when he had a tire go down. And then, of course, this past one. So four out of the five Atlanta races on the new configuration, Kyle Larson has failed to finish. I mean, that's pretty astounding in in itself. And for Brad Keselowski, I mean, this is the worst start to his career. Two races in, going to be three races in later today at Las Vegas, finishing 33rd in the Daytona 500 and this past Sunday at Atlanta Motor Speedway. That is a certain consistency that you don't want to have. And so far this weekend at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, it's not looking any better for Brad Keselowski. He was 28th in practice yesterday and ended up qualifying 25th while his teammate Chris Busher was 10th in practice and qualified 9th. So I, I'm not exactly sure what's going on with Brad Keselowski, Matt McCall in the sixth team. Maybe it is the new Mustang body. Maybe it is the new front end. Maybe Brad's having trouble adjusting to that. But they have got to get their season turned around because they've already dug a pretty significant hole being 34th in points. And if they have another bad run today, I mean... Their season is pretty much going down the drain right before our very own eyes. So Atlanta Motor Speedway, what was so remarkable about this and what was so remarkable about a three-wide photo finish. I mean, how often in NASCAR do you get a three-wide photo finish? The only two times I can think of prior to this past Sunday at Atlanta Motor Speedway, I think of the 2003 truck race at Daytona. Rick Crawford, Travis Quapple, Robert Presley. I think of the spring race at Talladega in 2011, Jimmy Johnson, Clint Boyer, Jeff Gordon, the top three. I mean, Jimmy beating Clint Boyer by two one-thousandths of a second, tying Ricky Craven and Kurt Busch for the closest margin of victory in a Cup Series race. This was the third smallest victory in a Cup Series race. Daniel Suarez, three one-thousandths of a second, over Ryan Blaney, our defending champion, and seven one-thousandths of a second over Kyle Busch, who finished third, and actually is the championship leader. The championship leader 
with Richard Childress Racing. And this is the first time Kyle Busch is leading the championship since he won the 2019 championship. So it's definitely been a while as far as Kyle Busch leading the championship goes. But what a feel-good story for Daniel Suarez winning this past Sunday night at Atlanta Motor Speedway. The second win of his career, the other being at Sonoma in June of 2022. And for Daniel, Daniel was definitely feeling the heat going into this season. When you consider he missed the playoffs last year, he didn't win a race. And it was very, very late in the offseason when his crew chief, Travis Mack, moved over to Colleague Racing and they swapped positions. He acquired Matt Swiderski, who's been with Colleague Racing for a long time and won two cup races with A.J. Allmendinger, the Indy Road Course in 2021 and the Charlotte Roval this past October. But Daniel, feeling the heat going into this season, it's no different than his entire career when you think of it. I mean, January of 2017, you're just two months removed from winning the Xfinity Championship. Carl Edwards retires out of nowhere, and immediately you're thrust into the 19 car and expected to perform. And your crew chief, Scott Graves, steps down after five or six races because of personal matters. And... When Daniel didn't make the playoffs in 2017 or 2018, they quickly kicked him out the door for Martin Trex Jr. as Furniture Row Racing was set to close their doors at the end of 2018. And then in 2019, basically a stopgap, one year in the 41 car for Stuart Haas after Kurt Busch left and basically keeping, keeping the seat warm for Cole Custer when he would move up the cup in 2020. And I remember when Daniel crashed out of the qualifying race at Daytona in 2020 and missed the Daytona 500. And it made you wonder right then and there, is his career pretty much done? Is it on life support? And he was given this second chance, a second life, I guess you could say, with Justin Marks and Pitbull when they formed Trackhouse Racing in 2021. But even then, the pressure was on right then and there when Ross Chastain, when they acquired the one team from Chip Ganassi, and Ross gets in there the first year right off the bat, wins Coda, wins Talladega, makes it all the way to the championship race, only to finish second to Joey Logano. So he's definitely been feeling the pressure. You have Carson Hosevar, Zane Smith, Shane Van Gisbergen, who won in his cup debut at Chicago. And it made you wonder going into this year, is Daniel Suarez going to be out of the 99 car come 2025? And Justin Marks made such an emphasis in the press conference Sunday night at Atlanta Motor Speedway. I can't see Daniel Suarez in anything besides track house racing. I mean, take that for what it's worth. We've we've seen and heard this many, many times before. But like we were saying, I mean, that team was basically built around Daniel Suarez. So definitely happy for him. Happy for Matt Swiderski, the second one of Daniel Suarez's career. And he ties... Juan Pablo Montoya and Marcus Ambrose as the winningest foreign drivers of all time. Only difference is with Marcus, both of his wins were at Watkins Glen. With Juan Pablo Montoya, they were both road courses, Sonoma and Watkins Glen. So Daniel Suarez, just the third foreign-born driver to win on an oval. Mario Andretti, of course, 1967 Daytona 500. And the late Earl Ross from Canada winning in the fall of 1974 at Martinsville Speedway. 
Taking a look at the finishing order from this past Sunday at Atlanta Motor Speedway, as we said, Ryan Blaney in second, Kyle Busch third, Austin Sendrick in fourth, his first top five finish of the season after one top five all of last year when Kevin Harvick was disqualified at Talladega. And rounding out the top five was Bubba Wallace. Bubba Wallace, two races, two fifth place finishes, only driver to finish in the top five and top ten for that matter in both races. I mean, like we were saying on the last show, I feel like this is a breakout season that Bubba Wallace is about to have. And to overcome spinning out on the second lap of the race with the damage that he had, speeding on pit road, going almost two laps down at one point, what a remarkable job for Bubba Wallace, Booty Barker, and the 23 team. Two races, two fifth-place finishes. I mean, what an incredible start to the season. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. was sixth, Ross Chastain seventh, Pole sitter Michael McDowell in eighth, Chris Buescher ninth with all the damage that he suffered on the day, and Ty Gibbs rounding out the top ten. Much needed 11th place finish for Harrison Burton. Martin Trex Jr. in 12th, definitely one of the better runs he's had in super speedway races. Corey LaJoy 13th, Kaz Grala, highest finishing rookie in the race in 14th. Chase Elliott finishing 15th in his home race after getting swept up in a couple of accidents. Ryan Priest was 16th. William Byron, 17th after hitting the inside wall going down into turn three when Michael McDowell plowed into him as they were coming onto the access road on pit road. Daniel Hemrick was 19th. Carson Hosevar, no, Daniel Hemrick, 18th. Carson Hosevar, 19th. Justin Haley, 20th. John Hunter Nemechek, 21st. Austin Dillon, 22nd. Two races, two wrecks he's been swept up in. And Denny Hamlin, 23rd, like we talked about. All three stages. Three accidents. Pretty crazy to think about. BJ McLeod, 24th. Eric Jones, 25th. What a horrible weekend for Eric at Atlanta. Losing control and qualifying, nearly spinning out, starting last. And when you start last, these are the kind of things that you run into. Todd Gilliland, 26th after leading the most laps on the day with 58. Alex Bowman, five laps down in 27th. Joey Logano, 28th. After he basically wrecked himself and Chris Buescher, Josh Berry, 29th out of the race with an accident. Josh, I felt like, was doing a remarkable job. Tyler Reddick in 30th, Chase Briscoe, 31st, Kyle Larson, 32nd, Brad Keselowski, 33rd, Christopher Bell, 34th, Zane Smith, 35th, Noah Gregson, 36th, and Josh Williams was 37th. On to today at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, the Pennzoil 400. And for the second year in a row, Joey Logano is on the pole for the Pennzoil 400 in the Pennzoil Ford. Kind of suspicious, isn't it? And so far this year, Joey Logano on the pole for the Daytona 500, second at Atlanta, on the pole today at Las Vegas. It definitely gives you those Ryan Newman, Penske vibes when you think of it. And for Joey, three wins at Las Vegas, the first one coming five years ago today for that matter. And then he won there in February of 2020, just his second race with Paul Wolf. And he won there on my birthday in 2022, clinching a spot in the championship for the biggest thing with Joey. It seems like lately at Las Vegas, they have the speed and qualifying, but they can't really back it up in the race as we saw last year. Starting second is the number five of Kyle Larson. Hard to believe that just three years ago at Las Vegas Motor Speedway in this race was his first win with Hendrick Motorsports. And Kyle, when it comes to this next-gen car at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, man, 
the, do he and Cliff Daniels have this place figured out? Should have won the, the spring race there in 2022. Ran wide through three and four. Last lap of the race, giving the win to Alex Bowman. Had a great car there in October of 2022. We know about the incident with himself and Bubba Wallace. And second in this race last year to William Byron. And won the October race last year to clinch a spot in the championship four. So I probably will say this right right here, right now. Kyle Larson just might be the guy to beat today at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Starting third is the two of Austin Sendrick. Finished sixth in this race last year, but it was because of pit strategy. Staying out under the last caution. I mean, we're only three races in, but Austin Sendrick reuniting himself with his old Xfinity crew chief, Brian Wilson. You've seen it so far. Had a car that could have won the Daytona 500. Had a car that could have won Atlanta. Won a stage at Atlanta and finished fourth. So, so far, Austin Sendrick is looking much, much better compared to last year. Starting fourth is the 24 of William Byron, the defending winner of this race. And honestly, just looking at the lap times and the averages, I think it's safe to say that this race today will probably be a repeat of last year. William Byron and Kyle Larson, without a doubt, they definitely have the two best cars in this race. Starting fifth is the 23 of Bubba Wallace. As I was saying, career year so far, fourth in points. Fifth in the, in the Daytona 500, fifth at Atlanta. And Bubba finished fourth in this race last year, the highest non-finishing Hendrick Motorsports car. When you think of Byron, Larson, and Bowman finishing 1-2-3 in this race last year, we know about Bubba. We know how strong he is on the mile-and-a-half racetracks. And I definitely look for him to be one of Kyle Larson and William Byron's biggest threats today. Starting sixth is the 14 of Chase Briscoe. Chase got a top five at Las Vegas in the fall of 2022. And it seems like he's had a really, really good knack for Las Vegas, especially with this next-gen car. So like we talked about, he had a horrible year last year, just like Austin Sindrick. He reunited himself with his old Xfinity crew chief, Richard Boswell. So who knows, maybe Chase Briscoe could be a dark horse today. On to row four, we have a pair of Joe Gibbs racing teammates, the 19 of Martin Trex Jr., the 54 of Ty Gibbs. And Martin has a win at Las Vegas, his championship season in 2017. Ty Gibbs has an Xfinity win there, his championship season in 2022. I don't feel like today is the day that Ty Gibbs gets his first win, but I feel like they're definitely getting closer and closer. On to row five, starting ninth is the 17 of Chris Buescher. It's so weird because this is not one of Chris's best racetracks at all. But so far this weekend at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, he's looking really good. And his car owner and teammate Brad Keselowski is looking horrible. I don't know how to explain it. And rounding out the top 10 is the 20 of Christopher Bell. We know Christopher has an incredible qualifying record at Las Vegas. He already has three poles there. It's just a matter of closing the race out. Finished a very, very close second to Kyle Larson in the October race last year. And definitely, if that race would have been five laps longer, I think Christopher Bell probably would have won that race. Starting 11th as the number nine of Chase Elliott. And of course, last year, the spring race at Las Vegas, the Friday before that, was when Chase Elliott broke his leg and would end up missing six races out of this. Josh Berry, his first laps in the next-gen car, came at Las Vegas in that nine car. Chase, the weird thing with Chase is 
when it, it was the Gen 6 car, it seemed like he did good at Las Vegas, but with the next gen so far, it seems like this is definitely one of their weaker racetracks, but nonetheless, I definitely expect him to be a factor at some point today. Starting 12th is the 34 of Michael McDowell. Pretty crazy to think that this isn't his first front row start of the year, first time all year that he didn't make the final round of qualifying, but nevertheless, you're seeing that Penske alliance definitely pay off for front row motorsports. Starting 13th is the 47 of Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Ricky finished third in this race back in 2020. Not really expecting too much out of him today. Starting 14th, the 77 of Carson Hosevar. I mean, what an, an incredible job he's doing with the 77 car when last year it was one of the slower cars in the field with Ty Dillon. He definitely is impressing me so far this year. Starting 15th is the 12 of Ryan Blaney. How about that? Row 8, Ryan Blaney starting 15th, Daniel Suarez starting 16th. I feel like these two definitely could be contenders when it's all said and done. Daniel had a great shot to win at Las Vegas in the fall of 2022. Starting 17th is the 7 of Corey LaJoy, definitely overachieving it feels like. And 18th is the 45 of Tyler Reddick, but I wouldn't be too concerned. He had one of the best 10-lap averages in practice yesterday. Unfortunately, having to be one of the first cars to go out and qualify after wrecking this past Sunday at Atlanta. Starting 19th is the three of Austin Dillon. Definitely, definitely needs to pick it up. Definitely needs to have a good run, just like Joey Logano, just like Brad Keselowski. Two races involved in two wrecks, none of their, their own making, so definitely has to pick it up. Starting 20th is the guy that was fastest in practice yesterday, the number one of Ross Chastain. But Ross, we know about his record at Las Vegas. He finished third in this race two years ago, second to Joey Logano in the fall race that year. So I feel like Ross definitely will be getting up towards the front when it's all said and done. Starting 21st is the number eight of Kyle Busch, our points leader. But last year, he and Randall Burnett, the eight team at RCR, it seemed like they struggled a lot at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Starting 22nd is the 43 of Eric Jones. He, Dave Ellens, and Legacy, they're still getting used to the new Toyota. This is definitely going to be their first true test to see where they stack up. But I definitely think that Eric will be getting better as the year progresses. Starting 23rd is the 48 of Alex Bowman, who lucked into the victory in this race two years ago. And... I think it's pretty alarming in itself. Kyle Larson qualified second, William Byron fourth, Alex Bowman qualified 23rd at supposedly one of his best racetracks. And he definitely has a good knack for the next gen at Las Vegas, like we talked about. He lucked into the win in this race two years ago, didn't get to run the race that October because of his concussion. Noah Gregson, though, hopped in the 48 car that day and finished 11th. And last year at Las Vegas, Alex finished third in this race behind... William Byron and Kyle Larson, and had a top five car in the October race before he crashed. Starting 24th is the 71 of Zane Smith. I feel like Zane is doing as best as he can with this brand new team, a third team at Spire. And starting 25th is the number six of Brad Keselowski. With Brad, he has three wins at Las Vegas, but those three wins all came with Paul Wolf as his crew chief. You think of 2014, when Dale Earnhardt Jr. ran out of gas half a lap away from the finish. 2016, a very, very windy day at Las Vegas, like what, what, we're, what we're expecting today. And Brad won the first fall race at Las Vegas in 2018. But 
this next-gen car at Las Vegas with Matt McCall. They haven't shown any speed so far this weekend. The only real good run they had with the next-gen at Las Vegas was this past October when they finished fourth. Starting 26th is the number four of Josh Berry. Josh, two Xfinity wins at Las Vegas, the fall races of 2021 and 2022. He and Rodney Childers, they're still working to get their communication down. They have fast cars. They've just had a lot of bad luck in these first two races. Starting 27th is the winner of yesterday's Xfinity race at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, the 42 of John Hunter Nemechek. Starting 28th is the number 11 of Denny Hamlin. And for Denny, he won the fall race at Las Vegas in 2021. It was a horrible track for him early on in his career, but with Chris Gabehart, it seems like they definitely have a good knack for Las Vegas Motor Speedway, so give it time. He'll be a factor before the day's over. Starting 29th is the 21 of Harrison Burton. Starting 30th is the number 10 of Noah Gregson at his home track. Starting 31st is the 38 of Todd Gillen. Starting 32nd, the 15 of Kaz Gralla. And in row 17, colleague racing, making his NASCAR Cup Series debut today, the number 16 of Derek Krause, Daniel Hamrick, starting all the way back in 34th. And then to round out the field, Justin Haley in 35th, Ryan Priest in 36th after he wrecked in practice yesterday, and starting 37th is the 44 of J.J. Yaley. So today at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, the Pennzoil 400, 330 on Fox, Mike Joy, Two-time Las Vegas winner Kevin Harvick, 2015-2018. Matter of fact, the first top 10 finish of Kevin's career came at Las Vegas in 2001. And Clint Boyer, they will be on the call, 267 laps. Stage 1, lap 80. Stage 2, lap 160. And when I look at the averages from yesterday in practice, I look at Hendrick Motorsports, I look at 2311, I feel like it will be a Chevrolet versus Toyota battle. But Kyle Larson, William Byron, Tyler Reddick, Chase Elliott, Christopher Bell, Bubba Wallace, Ryan Blaney, Joey Logano. These are some of the names when you think of who showed the most speed in practice yesterday with the 10-lap averages. And I feel like, like I was saying, I think people are sort of expecting a Hendrick versus Gibbs battle. I think it could be Hendrick versus 2311 today. I really do. And I feel like... Kyle Larson and William Byron, all of the speed that they showed at Las Vegas last year. We know that Kyle Larson definitely likes to work that high line in. I could see him doing that. I could see William Byron maybe about half a groove lower, maybe on the bottom. And even though Tyler Reddick qualified 18th, obviously that high line, that's going to work to his advantage. Bubba Wallace, I feel like they definitely have shown the speed and the potential this year. And then Christopher Bell. As far as... The best chances when you think of Ford, I would have to look at the Penske camp, and I would have to look at Blaney and Logano. Austin Sendrick, I'm still sort of skeptical as far as this is the first true racetrack that they're at this year, and they definitely have shown improvement, but I definitely want to see that more and more often as the year progresses. Beyond that, I mean, Ross Chastain and Daniel Suarez, I know they didn't qualify too great, but maybe those, those cars are set up to race great. So, as far as a pick goes today at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, honestly, I would have to say it's going to be one of the two Hendrick Motorsports cars. And I definitely want to lean towards William Byron winning this race 
for the second year in a row, two out of three wins so far this year. But I just feel like his teammate, the number five of Kyle Larson, I feel like Kyle has even more speed in that car today than William Byron does. Not by a lot, but just based on the lap averages alone, I'm taking Kyle Larson to win today at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. So that will do it for episode 134 of Jake's Take. I appreciate you guys tuning in. Enjoy the race today. Should be a good one.